Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 14. Last week in our study in the book of Joshua, we have been looking at it as an instruction manual on victorious Christian living. We saw the children of Israel under Joshua's command had conquered most of the land of Canaan that God had promised to give to them. However, we read in chapter 13, verse 1, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. And there remains very much land yet to be possessed. See, God told Joshua, Joshua, you've been a faithful warrior. You've been faithfully leading my people into battle for all these years. But Joshua, you're too old to keep leading the army of Israel into battle. What you need to do is you need to divide up the land by lot, giving each tribe their own portion. And that they are to be responsible for driving out the remaining pockets of enemy resistance from their own inheritance. You can't do it all, Joshua. Your time has come to an end now. It's up to them to finish the work which I have led you to begin. I want them to take full possession of the land that I've given them. The problem was that by this time now, seven years in, it was seven years since they had been fighting there in Canaan. And the problem was that many of God's people by this time were tired of war. They, they didn't want to fight anymore. All they wanted to do was settle down in peace and comfort and begin to enjoy what they had already taken possession of. And so later in the book of Joshua, we read over and over again how that family after family and tribe after tribe failed to drive the enemy completely out of the portion of land that they had received. Now, God said, if you don't finish the work, if you don't go all the way, and drive the enemy completely out from your midst, I'm not going to do it. I will leave them there, and they will be a constant source of irritation to you. They will be a stumbling block. And of course, Israel did not do what God had said. They gained partial victory, and they got tired and said, this is good enough. And because of it, it brought problems for the nation down the road, big problems. And that was this, that because the enemy was allowed to remain with all their idolatry and all their pagan worship, it began to spread, permeate through the nation of Israel among God's people. And finally, God's people fell into idolatry and apostasy, and God eventually judged the nation and removed them from that land. It's kind of like cancer. You don't cut most of the cancer out of your body and think it's good enough. You're going to be healthy now. You have to get it all out. And these enemy nations were a cancer. I mean, we had talked about how they had, uh, were into child sacrifice. They were into the most incredibly evil demonic practices and God says I don't want them infecting you they're like a rabid dog they're going to be they're going to destroy themselves eventually anyways I want you to hasten the process and just wipe them out get them out of this land I'm giving it to you but they didn't do it and finally like a cancer it began to spread again and it overwhelmed God's people and eventually brought the nation down now in contrast to that, there was only one man that did drive the enemy out of his inheritance completely. And that man's name was Caleb. And we pick up the story in chapter 14, verse 6. And the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the, Kenez, uh, the uh, Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. 
Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly follow the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot is trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and coming in. Now therefore give me this mountain, of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Give me this mountain, Caleb said. You know, any pastor or teacher will tell you there are verses in the Bible, phrases, that when you read them, they just jump off the page and beg you to make a sermon out of them. This is one of those phrases. Before we look at Caleb's request, I want to take a little time to try to better understand the man who made the request. Who was Caleb? Well, first of all, we know he's a man of character. How do we know that? Well, the first time Caleb's name appears in scriptures in Numbers 13, verse 6, as one of the 12 spies that Moses sent out to spy out the land. We read in Numbers 13, verse 2, that the Lord said to Moses, send men to spy out the land of Canaan. I am giving to the children of Israel, which I am giving to the children of Israel, from each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one, listen, a leader among them. Caleb was chosen to be one of the twelve spies because he was the leader of the tribe of Judah, which meant the people of Judah recognized him to be a man of character. A man of character. Sadly, that's not how most Americans choose their leaders today. Most Americans don't choose men and women because they're men and women of character to be a leader. They choose them because they look good, they speak well, or they promise to bring the most money back to our district, or our state from Washington. That's sad because those typically are not the best people for leadership. But Caleb was a man of character. Secondly, Caleb was a man who had a heart for God. He had a heart for God. We read in Numbers 14, verse 24, God said, but my servant, Caleb, because, listen, he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully. And then God goes on to, to pronounce a blessing and a promise upon Caleb. Caleb had a heart for God. As New Testament Christians, we would say that he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. When we studied Ephesians 5, verse 18, and Paul said, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. We saw that to be filled with the Spirit means to be constantly controlled by the Spirit in mind, in our will, in our emotions, and of course in our actions. And that was certainly true of Caleb. Caleb was a man who, who allowed the Spirit to dominate and control his life, which manifested itself in the fact that he fully, or the Hebrew word means wholeheartedly, followed the Lord as God and everything. In fact, the name Caleb actually means wholehearted. 
and six times in the book of Numbers and Joshua together. So six times total. That phrase is used to characterize Caleb's commitment to God, that he was a man that wholeheartedly followed God in everything. And, of course, I believe it was the secret to his greatness for God. Number three, Caleb was a man who believed in the promises of God. We just read in Joshua 14 how that Caleb, along with Joshua, were part of the 12 tribes that went in to spy out the land. Well, we know that Joshua and Caleb brought back a good report when they came back from the land. We also remember how there were 10 other spies who brought back an evil report. Why? Because they were afraid. The land was good, just like God said. But there were giants, literal giants in the land. They lived in fortified cities, drove iron chariots, big people. And the 10 evil spies said, you know, we don't trust God. They didn't say this openly, but this is what happened. We don't trust God to give us victory against those kind of enemies. And so we don't want to go in there. We're not going to encourage the people to go in there. They're going to get wiped out. So they discouraged the hearts of the people from going into the, to possess the land that God had given them. Of course, Joshua and Caleb tried to encourage the people to obey God. Caleb said in Numbers 12, 13, verse 30, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession of this land, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, don't lose sight of the context. Caleb is saying, look, don't listen to these guys who are telling us that we can't conquer this land. Yes, there are giants there. Yes, they live in fortified cities and drive iron chariots. But look, our God has promised it to us. Therefore, we are well able to go and take possession of it. But as you well know, the people listened to the ten evil spies and refused to go into the promised land for fear of the enemy. And so... The Lord pronounced judgment upon them. And Moses is recounting that judgment in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 34 to 6. He said, And the Lord heard the sound of your words, talking about 40 years earlier, when God wanted to bring them into the promised land, but they wouldn't hear of it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't listen to God, or Caleb, or Joshua. And so God sent them out into the wilderness to wander for 40 years. And Moses is saying, Look, the Lord heard the sound of your words, and was angry, and took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land of which I swore to give to their fathers, except Caleb, the son of Japuna. He shall see it, and to him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked. Every place Caleb's foot touched when he was spying out the land, God says, I'm going to give him that area as an inheritance. Why? Because he wholly followed the Lord my God. So Caleb is reminding Joshua now, of that promise. And see, so he said in verse 9 of chapter 14, So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot is trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. You see, Caleb didn't think that the promises of God had an expiration date attached to him simply because he was getting older. I mean, I love his heart. He was a tough old warrior, and all he wanted to do was to finish the work God had given him to do. doesn't matter how old he was. He wanted to finish the work God had given him. I like what author Philip Keller says. He said, and I quote, He was not in his old age and advancing in years seeking a soft spot or a comfortable little corner of the country to settle in. No, no, no. Instead, the tough, grizzled old war horse was prepared to take a whole rugged mountain range for himself. It was the stronghold of the sons of the ferocious giants of the Anakim. 
He was not a man to shrivel up in fear at this late stage of his life. Give me this mountain, he exclaimed, in an outburst of triumph. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Also, author Warren Worsby adds a thought. He said, and I quote, We are never too old to make new conquests of faith in the power of the Lord. Like Caleb, we can capture mountains and conquer giants if we wholly follow the Lord. No matter how old we become, we must never retire from trusting and serving the Lord, end quote. And you know, as I pointed out in the past, I think that's a real problem in the church today. In America, I think primarily. And that is that older Christians, okay, maybe they're not that old in age, like Caleb was 85, but they've been Christians for 15, 20 years and whatever, and, and it's like they're taking early retirement, all right? They're getting out of the work of the Lord, you know? Let the younger folks do it. I have been fighting the battles of God for 20 years. Now, I'm tired. I'm going to kick back a little bit. I want to just rest, enjoy some fellowship. I don't want to get out there and, and, and be involved in ministry. It's hard, and there's sacrifice. I just, you know, let somebody else fight the battles of God. Well, thank God Caleb didn't have that kind of heart. Caleb said, it doesn't matter if I'm 85 years old. Where's the enemy? All right? And I'm going to try new challenges. In fact, I want you to bring on the toughest you got. I don't want the, an easy ministry. Give me a mountain over there with those big guys. I want them. All right? That's God's best for my life. I'll tell you what. We are never too old to serve the Lord until the Lord says we're too old. And that usually happens when he's taking us home. Otherwise, we keep fighting. We keep serving. I remember a story, a true story of a woman who was in her early 80s. And God spoke to her one day about uh, going down to Chile to start a ministry down there. And uh, so what did she do? She approached uh, every missions organization she could think of to ask them if they would sponsor her and send her down. Well, of course, they were like, ma'am, we appreciate your heart for the Lord, but you're, you're 80 years old. Uh, it's going to cost a lot of money to train you and then money to send you down to Chile. I mean, you're, you're just too old to invest that kind of money in. Why don't you just stay home and just serve the Lord in your local church? You know, just... Again, a comfortable ministry. Every missions organization turned her down for the same reasons. But she was so convinced the Lord had called her that she sold her house, she sold everything she had, and she went down to Chile on her own. And you know what? She started and founded the greatest work in Chile for the Lord they had ever seen until she got there. Remarkable things happened. Because this woman said, you know what? Others might think I'm too old, but God doesn't think I'm too old. And as long as he wants me to serve him, I'm going to go ahead and serve him. Look, the older a man or woman of God gets physically, the more their faith has had time to grow and develop, but the stronger they should be spiritually. I just believe that. You know, Paul said, even though the outward man is perishing, this physical body's wearing out, right? Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. It's a good name for a radio show, by the way just in case somebody's thinking about that. But even though the outward man is wearing out, this body is wearing out, yet inwardly I'm not wearing out. I'm growing stronger day by day because I'm walking with the Lord. And as such, the older I get and the weaker I get physically, the stronger I should be getting spiritually. And that means that the people of God should fight, listen, their greatest battles, the ones that require the most faith when they're older as opposed to when they're younger. This is not a time to retire since you've been walking with the Lord for 30 or 40 years. This is a time to say, look, I'm in the prime of my life spiritually. 
God, give me a mountain somewhere. I want to serve you. Give me a big ministry so I can show the world that it's not me. In my weakness, I'm nothing, but I live in your strength. When I'm weak, I'm strong, right? Look, God only decommissions and puts on a shelf those soldiers that are tired of fighting the battles of the Lord. But the others, like Paul the Apostle, who keep on fighting, who don't give up, like Paul who came to the end of his life and was able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That should be the goal of all of our lives for the Lord. So Caleb was a man of character. He was a man filled with the Spirit, a man who had a heart for God. He was a man who believed in the promises of God. And fourth, he was a man who was patient and waiting on God to do what he had promised. It's a big one here. You realize Caleb waited 45 years for God to do what he had promised Caleb he was going to do. He said, Caleb, this area is yours. All right, Lord, 45 years passed. And all that time, he fought alongside Joshua and his other brethren to help them gain their inheritance while he quietly waited in the background for himself. He put others in front of himself. He helped others gain their inheritance and their portion. And he hung back and he waited for his time. And that time finally came 45 years after God had promised it to him. How many of us would wait 45 years for God to fulfill a promise? How many of you believe God has told you he is going to use your lives? And that was like 10 years ago. And you're thinking, man, I don't know what that was all about, but it's over. Well, I'm not telling you it's going to take another 35 years. But just because time has gone by doesn't mean the promises of God wear out and expire. In fact, somebody has said, when God wants to do his greatest work through a person, he is never in a hurry. He takes the most time preparing them. The trouble is, with as Americans, we're not known as patient people. Okay, put it gently. You know, we tend to hang in there for a while. When God tells us something, we get all gung-ho. and Okay, Lord, we're all ready, you know. And, and we're waiting for a while. We're trusting the Lord. But after a while, and it's not a long while usually, it's, it's kind of quick oftentimes, we kind of you know, get impatient. And we either give up, right, walk away, or we try to help God out. That's a big one, right? Like Abraham, right? God gave him a promise when he was 75 years old. Abraham, you and Sarah have no children. I'm going to give you a son. A son? I'm 75. Sarah's 65. Lord, come on. No, you're going to have a son. Great. A year passes, two, year pa- two years pass, five years, ten years. Thirteen years later. Abraham says he's 88 now. He says, you know, I'm not getting any younger here. Uh, Maybe God meant that I should help him. You know, Sarah's barren, but in my culture, I can go into her handmaiden and raise up seed through her. That's acceptable. And so he did. And, of course, you know the story. She gave birth to a son that Abraham called what? Ishmael, who became the father of the Arab nations. And, of course, we all know there's no conflict between the Jews and the Arabs, don't we? Twelve years later, when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, God gave to them the son he had promised, and they named him Isaac. Good lesson to learn here. God doesn't need our help. Don't help God out. If God gives you a promise, what do you do? What did Mary do when the, when the angel Gabriel came to her and said, Mary, you're going to have a son. How, how is that possible? I don't even know a man. I'm a virgin. You're going to have a son. You're going to call his name Jesus. He's going to, be, he's going to save his people from their sins. What did Mary do? She pondered it in her heart. How do you run out and make a virgin birth happen anyways? I mean, really, think about it. You know, I mean, that's a total miracle, right? 
And yet all of our struggles that we face, that God gives us victory over our, our miracles. We just don't see it that way oftentimes. We think we can help God. Don't help God. He gives you a promise. Ponder it in your heart. Do whatever you can to prepare, but don't try to make it happen. Okay? You only make an Ishmael. That's a mess. All right? Enough Christian Ishmaels running around. All right? We don't want that anymore. All right, we've looked at the man. Let's finish by looking at his request. Verse 12. Now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. Let's break this request down. First of all, Caleb's request was specific. He said, give me this mountain. He didn't say pick a mountain, Joshua. No, he said, give me this mountain. You know, often our prayers are too vague or ambiguous. We pray things like, Lord, save the world. Well, that's a little vague, all right? Instead, focus on on one area of the world. Maybe you're involved with a missions organization and you support missionaries. They all have newsletters. They all have email updates. Find out what's going on in that particular area where your missionary is located and begin to pray specifically for that area. Another example would be when we pray for ourselves, Lord, help me to live for you. Again, a little vague. I mean, how exactly and in what area of your life do you want the Lord to help you? What mountain of the flesh are you facing that you need God's grace to overcome and conquer? Of course, that brings with it confession and repentance. It's one thing to say, God, help me to live for you. And God will say, well, why aren't you living for me? Well, uh, I know why. Because you're living for some other things that are not right. Now, confess those things, repent of them, and I will give you grace to conquer the flesh or conquer this enemy in your life. So his request was specific. Secondly, his request was great. In other words, big. He said, give me this what? Mountain. Now, what kind of a prayer would... What kind of prayer would excite anybody if Caleb would have said, give me that anthill, Lord. Just give me that, that tiny little anthill over there. Give me this mountain, right? It's what some have called a BHAG prayer. B-H-A-G, big, hairy, audacious goal. Now be careful with those BHAG prayers. You don't want to be praying big, lofty prayers because of pride, Right? You know, didn't God say through Jeremiah, seekest thou great things for thyself, seekest them not? So make sure you're not praying these big prayers because you want glory. But if you pray them because you want God to be glorified, there's nothing wrong with that. We should be praying big prayers. You know, when I was studying for this message, I came across a commentator. I forgot the context. Right? He was talking to somebody and the guy was sharing with him something. And the commentator said to him, this is what stuck with me. You pray too small. Those words burned in my heart for two weeks. You pray too small. Why do we often pray too small? Because often our concept of God is too small. Let's be honest. How big is your God? Do we really believe God is infinite? That not only is there nothing hard for him, there's nothing even impossible for him. How big is our God? You know, Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigator's Ministry, was a man that made it a constant practice to ask God for great things. And if you've ever read his life story, and I have, he didn't ask God for great things for himself so that he would be well-known and his ministry would bring him all kinds of glory. He was a man that wanted to see people saved. And I remember reading his biography one time, 
And uh, he was saying that he actually had to ask God for forgiveness. He had to repent. Why? He said, because it was halfway, I was halfway through the day, and I hadn't yet asked God for anything great. I think the difference between, oftentimes, between men and women that God uses greatly and those that he doesn't, is the ones that he uses greatly don't have any extra abilities or talents, but they have that mindset. Who am I to serve God? I'm nobody. But I'm not the issue. God is, right? And I serve a big God. Why should I pray little tiny prayers when I, I have a God that is infinite? You should pray, Lord, do things through my life for your glory that go so far beyond my ability that when people see it, you would get all the glory. All the glory. I think God honors those prayers. I remember about seven years ago, after teaching on a Wednesday night, and there wasn't a whole lot of people there, and I came home and I got down by my bed and I prayed, Lord, I love studying your word and I love teaching your word. I just wish I had more of an impact on people. I wish more people were able to hear it. Lord, would you expand the area of my ministry? Would you allow me to reach more people with your truth? Lord, will you allow me to start a small group and maybe teach that? That was my mindset. About six months after that, the Lord opened a door. We weren't even thinking along these terms, along these lines. He opened the door for us to go on the radio. I wasn't even thinking radio. Now, it wasn't that I thought my God was too small to do something like that. I was just trying to keep it kind of humble, right? And just want to reach a few people for you, Lord. I'm thinking small group. God's thinking Chicago, you know? God's thinking Midwest. I'm thinking, you know, four or five people on a Thursday morning. God, no, you're thinking too small. Now, I know your heart was not trying to limit me. But here's the deal. I want to do big things. Nobody gets excited about me doing anthill stuff. I want to do mountains. I want to give you, inf- I want to use your ministries beyond anything you could even hope or imagine. We have to stop thinking small and start praying big. Make sure your motive is right. That you're not seeking great things for yourself, but you're really seeking great things for God. Listen to what God said through Jeremiah, chapter 33, verse 3. He said, call to me. And I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Things you never even dreamed of. That's the heart of our God. You know, years ago, I'm talking years ago now. I was only in ministry four or five years at the time. And I heard a teacher. He was a professor at a Christian college. He was talking about how that a group of Christian students for the summer wanted to get together and kind of live down at the beach and witness all summer to young people that were going to be going to the beach and, you know, just all kinds of folks, but targeting primarily, you know, young college-age kids and so on. And uh, they wanted to do that, a heart to do that that summer. So the professor said, all right, well, I'll get involved with you. And they brought in a, a, a guy, a, a teacher, uh, an evangelist, who was, uh, was uh, that was his ministry, to train people to go out and, you know, share their faith. And so he led this class, I don't know, maybe a couple Saturdays or whatever it was. He taught the kids how to share their faith in a a, kind of a beach-type setting. At the end of the training, one of them raised their hand and said, Well, sir, how many people can we expect to see come to the Lord typically over the course of a summer by doing this beach evangelism? And the teacher said, "Uh, Well, if you reach a couple of dozen kids for the Lord, that's amazing. If you were to reach like maybe a hundred, he said, That would be absolutely miraculous. And they thanked him, and then he left. And the professor was going to be staying with these young people that summer. He said, let's not limit God, okay? Our God is an awfully big God. Let's not limit God 
and what he wants to do this summer. Let's not go in thinking two dozen people. Let's go in thinking, Lord, we want you to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think this summer. And that's what they did. Well, the summer ended. The guy who was telling the story, the professor, he said, you know, at the end of that summer, those kids didn't bring a couple of dozen kids to Christ. They didn't even bring 100 kids to Christ. At the end of that summer, they had brought 1,200 kids to Christ. And in the process, they learned an awful important lesson. Our God is a very big God. Don't limit God. And certainly not because the obstacle or the challenge is mountain-sized. And who am I? Well, we are no one, but it's not our strength that's the issue. It's God's strength. Nothing is hard for our God. It honors him when we think of him in that, ter- in that way. Number three, first of all, Caleb's request was specific. His, secondly, his request was great. It was big. Thirdly, his request was based on the word of God. He said in verse 12, which the Lord spoke in that day. The promise that God gave me on that day. Well, that goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 36. See, Caleb's request was based on something God had said. It was based on the word of God. When you're asking God to give you something or do something for you, just make sure that your request is based in Scripture and not in pride, presumption, selfishness, or wishful thinking. There's a lot of Christians who are being taught that faith is all about claiming Cadillacs, Mercedes, mansions, big bank accounts. And so they come to God, and they're not really even asking. They're just basically claiming And then they wonder why they're not receiving the Cadillacs and the mansions. In fact, the only people who are getting rich are the ones teaching this stuff. You know, the preachers. And I've had to clean up some of the mess from people who have come to our church after going to those churches. Their faith is devastated because it didn't happen. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is you, they say. You didn't have enough faith. Are you even saved? (laughs) Okay. Talk about a guilt trip, right? When you ask God for something or ask him to do something through you or for you, Make sure that you're basing it on something God has promised in his word. I mean, Caleb's request was based on something God had told him. It was based on God's word. And ours must be also. Now, I know some would say, but wait a minute. In John 16, verses 23 and 4, didn't Jesus say, In that day you will ask me nothing, the day when I leave to go back to my Father? Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And they, and they see in that statement, that promise, they see a kind of a blank check, a carte blanche. That anything we want, we can just you know, make our request to God and tack Jesus' name at the end of it, send it up onto heaven, and whatever we want, Jesus' promise we're going to receive. The three cardinal rules of proper Bible interpretation... Context, context, context. Who was Jesus talking to? Was he talking to the multitudes when he said this? Or was he talking to his disciples? His disciples, of course, right? What did he earlier already teach them the cost of discipleship was going to be? If you want to follow me, if you want to be one of my disciples, what did he say? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The one who said, I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. 
I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. And the context is, guys, I'm going away soon. And where I'm going, you can't follow me. Not yet. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to receive you. I'm going to come back someday and get you. Take you to be with me. But until I come back for you, I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit who will abide with you forever. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he's going to give you everything you need to do the work I've begun. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. You're to go into all the world and preach the good news to everybody. I know you're simple fishermen. I know you're simple Galileans. You're not highly educated and trained individuals. That's okay. Because you're going to have my strength. And whatever you need for the work of the kingdom, whatever you need to bring souls to me, you pray the Father in my name, and he'll make sure you get it. It's not about Cadillacs. It's not about my personal wealth. It's about the glory of God. It's about seeing people saved. That's the context. Make sure your requests are Christ-centered and not self-centered. And you'll get what you need. Number four, his request, I love this, was fearless. He said in verse 12, For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. The Anakim, as we've already said, were literal giants. Goliath was one of these guys. And they lived in these fortified cities in a mountainous region. Now, that's like saying that Caleb had three strikes against them going in. You're going up against giants who live in fortified cities who live in the mountains. It's hard to fight up, right? It's hard to fight people who live in mountains because they already have the high ground. They already have the advantage strategically. But Caleb's request was fearless because it was rooted in God's strength. Turn to Deuteronomy 9 real quick. I want to show you what, uh, what God said that allowed Caleb to have such a fearless request of the Lord. Deuteronomy 9, starting in verse 1. We read, O hero Israel, God says, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Hey, look, Caleb wasn't being cocky. He wasn't being self-confident when he said, let me go in and take what God's promised me. Yeah, there's giants there. Yeah, they live in fortified cities. doesn't matter. Because the Lord has promised, not only me, but the rest of you, that these giants will not stand in our way because God himself will bring them down. Our God's a giant killer. David found that out. You think a 14, 15-year-old shepherd kid could bring down a nine-and-a-half-foot Philistine giant in his own strength? And God wanted David to know and all of us to know that our God's a giant killer. Don't look at the size of the enemy. Keep your eyes on the size of your God. Whatever that giant is that stands before you, whether it's a physical issue, a financial problem, whether it's a, an area of the flesh that seems to always conquer you, you know what? Our God is a giant killer. And Caleb was fearless because he knew that the battle was not his, it was the Lord's. And I'll tell you what, if I got the Lord standing by me, I'd take on anybody. Because one with God's a majority, okay? I know the Lord's with me, and I'm fighting his battles and not my own. I'll, I'll go up against anybody. Now, if I'm fighting in my own strength, forget about it. Number five, Caleb's request was confident 
yet humble. He said, it may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. Now, when Caleb said, it may be, uh, some say, well, look, it sounds like he was doubting God here. I, I don't believe that. Here's a guy that's only mentioned a handful of times in the Old Testament. Caleb was by no means a major personage in the Old Testament, not like a David or a Daniel or somebody else like that. He was only mentioned a few times. Yet I don't think there's another man in all the scriptures who played such a minor role in the historical narrative that has had such a major impact on our lives because of his conduct and attitude and so on. I mean, we name our kids Caleb, right? Because of this man's heart for God. I don't think he wavered at all. I don't think he was doubting. I just think Caleb was trying to be humble. Lord, I'm confident in you, but I don't want to put any confidence in me. You know, Lord, if my, if my heart is lifted up with pride, you might not be with me. So, Lord, I wanna, I'm not doubting you at all. I, I doubt me. That's how it always is. God's never the problem with the promises he gives us. If they're not being fulfilled, we don't look to God and say you're not faithful. We look to ourselves and say, okay, what am I doing wrong? Just like when Joshua heard that the uh, men of Ai had routed the army of Israel, fell on his face and began to impugn the character of God. And God says, it's not my fault. Get up. Israel has sinned. Careful. He was confident, yet he wanted to remain humble. That's a good combination. Well, finally, his request was granted. We read about this in verses 13 to 15. And Joshua blessed him and gave him Hebron, uh, gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day. Because, again, he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba. Kirjath means city of Arba, was the name of their greatest champion among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Look, as I said before, as far as we know, Caleb was the only one to completely drive the enemy out of his inheritance. And after Caleb conquered Kirjath Arba, he changed the name of this Anakim city to Hebron, a word which means fellowship or communion. As we've already said, the name Caleb means wholehearted. So the man called wholehearted wound up living in the place called communion. But you know what? That's where all those who are wholehearted for God wind up living. Because you know why? They're not going to sell for anything less. When you're wholehearted for God, when you are totally sold out to Him, you will never live in a city called Compromise. You will always seek to live in a place of communion. Because God is number one. Alright, let's just uh, bring this to a close. Let me just ask you a few questions. And really, just to kind of get you thinking. Challenge you a little bit. First of all, have you grown comfortable in your relationship with God and are no longer interested in going any higher? Caleb said, I want to go, I want that mountain, all right? I want to go higher. Have you grown comfortable? Have you settled into a nice, comfortable plane, all right? And are not looking to go any higher, are not looking to conquer any more territory for the Lord. You're not actively involved in ministry like you were. You're not really out there uh, witnessing and, and really involved in, in the work of God anymore. I'm not saying you've turned your back on the Lord. I'm just saying you're not actively involved. You've gotten comfortable. It happens to all of us at times, isn't it? I keep thinking of that song. I don't know if it's a Curtis Chapman song. 
But, uh, you know, the chorus goes, or part of it goes, some want to live within the sound of chapel bells, but I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. That's what we're talking about. Some people want to live in the sound of chapel bells. They're comfortable. Hey, church is great. I got friends. We come. We sing beautiful songs to the Lord. That Phil, once in a while, he ministers to me, but, you know, it's all right. And, you know, it's just great. And others are like, well, that's wonderful, but you know what? I don't want to live there. I want to, I want to run a mission or yard from the gates of hell. I want to be used by God to see people rescued. Yeah, but isn't it a little hot right there, a yard from the gates of hell? Isn't it a little tough? Right? Yeah, it's not easy. But I'd rather be suffering for the Lord in his will than relaxing outside the will of God in church. Have you grown comfortable? Number two, have you allowed fear to grip your heart? Because the mountain standing before you, whatever it might be, seems insurmountable and unbeatable. These are tough times. And we have talked about this before. Again, there are mountains of, that are physical in nature. In other words, people are getting reports back from doctors of serious physical conditions. Or maybe a loved one, a child, or spouse. Maybe it's a financial thing. A lot of people are out of work. And the bills are looming. And there's that fear that this mountain of debt is growing and you're going to lose your home. Or it might be some area of the flesh. What do you do when you've got a mountain standing in front of you that seems so much bigger than you're able to handle? You know what? That's the time to praise God. You know why? Because God is getting ready to do a work that when he works, you are going to be absolutely amazed at how powerful he really is. So you know what you do? Get your eyes off the mountain. Get your eyes on your God. Because we can't bring mountains down anyways. We're not giant killers. The battle is not ours. It belongs to the Lord. So keep your eyes on him and go into battle with praise. Which means confidence. That God is going to give you victory. Number three. We've kind of alluded to this one. But are you still wholehearted in your relationship with God and living in communion? Or are you half-hearted and living in compromise? And again, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow, subtle drifting because you haven't anchored your life to God's word every day. I can't tell you how many people have drifted from the Lord and they lament over it. They don't like it. In fact, some of them didn't realize it was even happening because it's happened slowly, doesn't it? Someone has likened it to um, the subtle uh, drifting that happens when you don't anchor a boat on the water. You know, it seems calm, so why anchor it? And yet, you don't realize that there is a current and it's carrying you slowly uh, away from where you started. So a lot of Christians like that. Uh, it's not that the storms are raging and their lives are in turmoil, but they're not anchoring themselves every day to the Lord through his word. And so they're drifting. And again, it doesn't happen all at once. It's imperceptible. But you wake up one morning and go, how did I get here? I used to be so on fire for the Lord. I used to be so wholeheartedly devoted to Him. I feel like I'm half-hearted in my devotion. I'm living in compromise, in carnality. Caleb was the kind of guy who kept fighting for the Lord, kept moving forward for the Lord, and as such, his heart never wavered for the Lord. Number four, and finally, are your prayers small and powerless because your faith is weak, or are they great and passionate because your faith is strong? Remember what James said, the fervent prayers of the righteous accomplish great things. 
The word fervent, passionate, um, underlies a heart that is on fire for the Lord. Look, what mountains are you facing today? And again, that could take so many different forms, couldn't it? What mountains are you facing today? What challenges? What obstacles? What enemy strongholds, maybe? Have you weakened and beaten down and discouraged and feeling helpless and hopeless? What mountain are you facing today? Let me end by taking it to Mark 11. And let's pick it up in verse 22. And I say verse 22 because a lot of people jump to verse 23 and miss the context. Let's start in Mark 11:22. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God, which means have faith in the promises of God. Have faith in the word of God. That's what he's talking about. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to what? This mountain. Interesting. Isn't that what Caleb said? Lord, give me this mountain. Whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now, is Jesus talking about moving literal mountains? I don't know too many occasions where you would have need to move a literal mountain. Actually, this was a rabbinical phrase. The rabbis taught that giant problems were like mountains. And Jesus, being a rabbi, picking up on that, says, look, whatever giants you're facing, whatever mountains of problems that are before you, if God has promised you victory in these areas of the flesh, whatever mountain of ministry he has laid on your heart that you're scared to death about tackling, but it's something that God's leading you in, you believe that because he wants to use you for greater things. Jesus said, you pray and you trust, and God will take care of that mountain. He'll move it. He'll bring you over it. He'll do whatever he has to do to give you the grace to overcome it. But you have to have faith. Don't be afraid of the mountains in your life. Keep your eyes focused on the Lord. Be a Caleb. Don't ever give up. Keep moving forward. And God will keep blessing and using you until the day Jesus comes for us. And will be able to say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And what an example to us all is a, is a guy like Caleb, Lord. We don't know much about him, but Lord, what we do know, what little bit we have about him speaks volumes about this man's character, his heart. And Lord, we want to be like him. Make us all spiritual Caleb's, Lord, those who are wholeheartedly serving you. These are not the times when we should be half-hearted. These are serious days. Many troubles. Many enemy strongholds around this nation. Give us grace, Lord, to be wholehearted in our commitment to you and to trust you for great things, for your glory, not ours. Greater ways to serve you. Greater victory in our personal lives. Greater passion for souls. Greater hunger for the word. Father, work this in our heart. Father, we thank you now. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.